Thank you, Will. Appreciate that. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn the back of the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> and uh, just to kind of refresh your memory, uh, the last time we were together, which was the week before last, uh, we went through a tremendous uh, in-depth study of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Uh, I think one of the uh, most richest passages in all of the Bible. I understand it was a little deep, and, uh, and uh, I always look for uh, the conjunction of using Sunday morning and Thursday night together. If there's ever anything that I lay out on Sunday morning that you don't totally grasp, because we are limited a little bit here with time, um, just write it down and bring it to Thursday night. Um, that's our time where we can really look at and open up anything that you're not sure of or uh, I didn't make clear. And um, so, but um, those kind of things stretch you. You don't always want to just be in the mode where all you get is the basic surface stuff from the Bible. You want to be able to stretch yourself and get a little deep into the Word of God and, and help you uh, develop your skills. And uh, I showed you out of Proverbs eleven twenty eight. we looked at Christ as the branch and how that if you and I want to flourish uh, in our Christianity, then we need to make this study an absolute priority in our life and a necessity, really grasping and understanding it. I told you how that, uh, that branch uh, is defined in the Old Testament four different ways, and I gave you the references. I showed you in Jeremiah 23, 5, where the branch is likened to the king. I showed you in Zechariah 3, 8, where that branch is likened to the servant. And then I took you to Zechariah 6.12, and she saw the branch that the Bible says is likened to the man. And then Isaiah 4.2, the branch that is the Lord. And the great study in that and the great majesty of that passage is how that the Holy Spirit of God laid that out in the Old Testament, but all four of those branches represent Christ. And yet, when you study the New Testament, you'll find that there's four accounts of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really give us uh, some insight into um, Christ's first coming. And I showed you how that each one of these uh, line up to one of the Gospels. In Go Matthew, Christ is portrayed as the king. In Mark, Christ is portrayed as a servant. In Luke, he's portrayed as the Son of Man, and in John, he's portrayed as the Son of God. And I showed you how that uh, it lays itself out not only to Christ, but it shows us the four aspects of our Christianity that we should have. <clears throat> we know that someday we're going to reign with Christ. We're going to be a king with him. We know that right now we're to be a servant, and we are to serve people, give them what they need, and be there for them as a servant, much as Christ does uh, for when he was on this earth. We also realize that we're human. We have a human side to us that uh, we have to deal with, but then we also realize that we have a glorious side to us, those that are saved. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he lives inside us today. So we see these four aspects. Not only do we develop them historically as we see Christ, but we can take each of those and develop them in our own lives. And, uh, you know, in your Bible, <clears throat> the Bible's built around a series of sevens. I call them God's systematic theology. You're going to find that seven in the Bible is a perfect number. 
And so when God orchestrated the Bible through the Holy Spirit of God, he set down the understanding of the Bible in a series of different studies that fall into a pattern of sevens. And they're very easy to follow. We've talked about it many, many times. One of the studies is the fact that the Bible talks about, given to the church, that there's seven mysteries. And when you understand those mysteries and you see them, you realize that two of those mysteries have to do with what we're talking about right here. One of those mysteries has to do with God's dealing with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's a mystery. It's a mystery that the world can't see. That's why the world is against the nation of Israel today. Unfortunately, many Christians in many churches are against them too because they don't follow the Bible. But when you believe the Bible and you follow the Bible, you realize that given to the church is a set of mysteries. And one of those mysteries is the nation of Israel and how God used them down through the Old Testament and and how God is preparing to use them again. The other mystery in the Bible is the mystery of the church. That's the New Testament. And again, there's a lot of people today that that are all messed up on the mystery of the church. And uh, that mystery lays out uh, where the church comes in. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and I laid all that out. And these two really form the balance of the Bible. Also in your Bible, Paul talks about, uh, and Peter says it one time, Paul talks about it six times, Peter talks about it once, seven things that a Christian should not be ignorant of. And he goes through systematically and he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning this or concerning that. I've found over the years that most of God's people, even though, even though we are told not to be ignorant of those things, you find the average child of God today, he has no idea what these seven things are. We've taught them in the church. They're on our website back there. Uh, uh, we've laid them out many, many times because, again, the Bible says that a pastor should be a steward of the mysteries of God. My job is to teach them to you help you understand them so you can develop yourself with the Bible. But these seven things that we're not to be ignorant of, here again, one of them is the church, the other one is the nation of Israel. And as I said, these form the foundation of the balance. And last week, I, or last time we were together, I showed you that Christ uh, in Romans chapter 11 was the olive tree. And how that the nation of Israel, the Bible says in Romans 11, were the natural branches that that were on that tree. And then I showed you how that God broke off those natural branches, and then he took a wild olive tree and grafted it in. And that was a picture of you and me as the Gentiles getting into Christ. And I laid all that out for you. And it completely shows you how God throughout history is building the Old Testament around the nation of Israel and the New Testament around the Gentiles and the church. I also showed you, and I've made reference to this many, many, many times, the absolute importance of understanding the importance of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a key book to lay out for you and me, the church, what we are to believe, uh, how we're to believe it, and how God has laid out the New Testament. And uh, I gave you then, if you remember, two examples of that branch. One of them was in John chapter 15, which was the nation of Israel. The other one was Romans chapter 11, which was a picture of the church. Two great examples of rightly dividing the word of truth and putting it all together. Now today, with that little reminder being off a week from it, now today we'll move on to the next verse. And first off, I want to say uh, that uh, um, 
this is in an immediate historical context is, 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 is very important. And probably most of you will not have this in your Bible, so you may want to jot it down and put it in there. But I want to show you uh, the, uh, the historical context first, and then I'll come back and I'll show you the practical aspect and so you can see how they both work out. Now, here's our verse today, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 29. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you for the folks that have come out. We thank you for it being Mother's Day, a day that we've set aside to, uh, to honor our moms. And, and uh, Father, we just pray that they'll have a blessed day and that everything that's said and done today in the families will honor them. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you've given us in our church, for the great people, for their giving heart, for their uh, spirit of ministry for their ability to be flexible and to go and do whatever, however, whatever needs to be done, Lord, and we just thank you for that. And we just praise you now in Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, this is a great verse, as I said, and it's a great is verse in its historical context as it is in its spiritual inspirational application. There's two great lessons here, and we want to focus on these today. Now, the context here of Proverbs, and we've known this for a long time as we've been coming through it, the context of Proverbs is about a wise man and about a foolish man. And we know that a wise man is someone who who does what God says, the foolish man is someone who does not. And in the context of chapter 11, when it says, he that troubled his own house, I want to define this for you historically, because this is very important. And the context of chapter 11, this house here, Uh, This house here historically will be the whole house of Israel. I want you to understand that. And uh, in the Bible, the idea of Israel being a house is based on the Bible doctrine of all salvation is found within Israel. John 4.22 says that salvation is of the Jew. The Bible teaches us that, uh, you know, that uh, God's building, uh, God's temple was with the nation of Israel. Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 and 9, spiritual Mount Zion, where God's spiritual temple is. And uh, when it talks about the house, it's talking about the house of Israel from which God gave salvation to everybody on this planet. I don't care if you're before the law, during the law, in the New Testament, in the tribulation period, in the millennium, or wherever you're at, salvation is going to come through the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that the house that was built was Israel, but in the building of that house, the chief cornerstone of that house is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how it lays out. A couple of months ago, well, really, it was, it was last year, I think, as I think about it, I brought you through a Thursday, couple of Thursday nights, and we talked about the dispensations. In fact, we've got it in a book back there. And uh, I showed you that uh, from Genesis to Revelation, You have 11 or 12, depending on how you count them, dispensations that span the Bible as far as God dealing with men in different ways. Now, the Bible, as you look at it, looks like an intimidating book. I don't know how many people over the years of my life, and even myself when I was young, I looked at that Bible and I thought to myself, wow, how are you ever going to learn all of that Bible? There's so much in it. There's so much that it talks about. There's so many people. There's so many events. There's so many places. How in the world are you all, oh, am I ever going to learn it? Well, then one day I found out 
that what God did when he did his Bible and laid it out is he broke it down into sections. Those sections become in time to be known as dispensations. I told you when we had our study that a dispensation was a period of time. It's a period of time when God deals with man this way, and then another dispensation starts when God deals with man another way. For instance, before Moses, God was dealing with man on the basis of his conscience. That's a dispensation. Once Moses came on the scene, God gives him the Ten Commandments. Now Moses and the children of Israel are in the dispensation of the law. Once Christ comes, the law is done away with. Now we're moving into the church age. That is another dispensation. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to wind up in your lap if I keep moving that way. (laughs) Dispensations are different sections of the Bible. You want to learn the Bible? Simply break it down into these dispensations. Take number one, look at it, study it, put it over here. Get number two, look at it, study it, put it over here. Look at number three, look at it, understand it, put it here. Right down the line. Once you understand them all, then you go back with your little spiritual drill gun and you just bolt them back together. Hence, the whole Bible's laid out for you in that simple format. That's what they call dispensations. Clarence Larkin, we have this book in our bookstore. Back around the turn of the century, he wrote, probably the book that did more for laying the foundation of the Bible in the early part of the 20th century uh, than any other writer when he wrote his series of books. And the one book that he wrote, which I think is his best book, is the book called Dispensational Truth, where he actually breaks it down. It's an incredible book. I might also tell you that most people today, (coughs) churches, don't believe in dispensations anymore. (coughs) I've had Pastors, people who study the Bible, think that dispensations uh, don't exist, yet you find the word dispensation several times in the Bible, so it must exist somewhere. But it's a thing where when you really want to understand the Bible, this is what you have. A dispensation is God dealing with man in different ways that requires him to do different things, that he finds his relationship with God. Uh, the Bible, in the Bible, this body of people from Genesis to Revelation is called the household of God. It's called the family of God. We always think our church is the family of God, and that would be true in a local sense. But on a Bible sense, spanning the whole Bible, this family of God encompasses everybody in those dispensations from Genesis to <coughs> Revelation. Let me show you a verse here in Ephesians 2 <coughs> that kind of gives you a little further light on it. Ephesians chapter 2, pick it up in here in verse 18. Now this is Paul speaking to the church. And he says here in verse 18, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no longer strangers and foreigners, here it comes, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. You see that? And are built upon the foundation of the apostles. Okay, then the apostles are the foundation of this household. And then he adds the prophets. The prophets would be the Old Testament prophets. They're built into this family, of this household. And then he tells you here, as I told you a few moments ago, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom this house All the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Now, you see what he just said? 
He just said that all of this family of God, every dispensation, every group of people that moved, that come down through the Bible, when they find God and they get in, whether before the law, during the law, after the law, whenever, they're now part of the household of God, the family of God. Bible says that every part of that house is fitly joined together, and the chief cornerstone of that house is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that house, fundamentally, where salvation is found. Salvation is of the Jew. We know it as the house of Israel. And that's very important for you to understand. Now, this house, as I said, is based on Israel. In the Old Testament, uh, everybody <coughs> looked to the uh, Old Testament to find God. <coughs> you could not find God uh, once the law came into effect. You could not find God outside of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, uh, it's the church. You can't find God outside the church. I've told you before, Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 23 talks about the two landmarks by which you can gauge and find yourself any place in history. Two focal points, the two landmarks that you fix your position in time. One of them is the nation of Israel. The other one is the New Testament local church. When you lay this out, and I don't want to get deep this morning, nor do I intend to confuse you. I'm just kind of giving you the basics. When you lay this out, talking about the household of God, this house here that we're talking about in Proverbs, you'll find that from Genesis to Revelation, there's basically seven basic families, groups of people that make up this house of God. And I don't have time to go into all of that this morning. That would be a great Thursday night question. These will be the seven people groups that will make up the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, which form the dispensation that I talked about. They form the family of God, the household of God. And they all reside under the umbrella of salvation, which comes from the Jew, the nation of Israel, the Father's house. Salvation is based on it. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Bible, uh, in its most basic form, in the Old Testament, they get in through a nation. And that nation is the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, we got our salvation through the nation of Israel, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a Jew. In fact, when you go all the way back to the early part of Genesis, you'll find that every aspect of salvation, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, wherever you're at, <clears throat> goes back to that Jew. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, <clears throat> that all nations, future reference, all nations would have their blessings in the nation of Israel. He told him, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that all the families of the earth would find God through the nation of Israel. The word house in your Bible is a key word in your Bible, as we find it in Proverbs chapter 11. When you see it, you want to immediately check the context. Sometimes, many times, it'll be talking about just a literal house, like Zacchaeus, you know, make haste and come down. I want to go today. I will abide in your house. That's a literal house. And sometimes you'll find it's a reference to something that deals with God's house, the nation of Israel. Let me give you a good example of this. Turn over to John chapter 14. I want to show you a great defining verse in the Bible. I'm going to show you how you take your Bible here and take a passage which, <laughs> for the most part, is, is pretty much taught wrong today. And I want to show you how just using your Bible, uh, you can figure out exactly what it's saying based on what I've already given you. John chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 1. 
Very familiar passage. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now here it comes. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that sermon over the last 40-plus years of my life that was talking about somebody putting in the context of New Testament Christianity, I'd be a rich man. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard it somebody saying that's talking about you, talking about me, going to heaven, the mansion I'm going to have up there. Well, even sing songs about it. I got a mansion just over the hilltop, you know, and I like the song. I, and I, and I, I understand all that. I'm not fighting anybody. I'm here to show you what the Bible says and how to rightly divide it. I told you before, when it comes to the Bible, you have to be exact. I know there's some latitude, and if somebody wanted to get up, and, and, uh, and I have no problem with that at all, as long as I understand what it's fundamentally saying. Every sermon for a funeral that I've ever heard, for the most part, the guy takes John chapter 14. And I know what he's trying to do. I understand. He's talking about the fact that uh, in my father's house, that's heaven, or many mansions, that's heaven, and you're going to have a mansion up there. But you know what? If you know your Bible and you understand your Bible, you know the job that God has for you and for me in a glorified body after Christ comes back and in eternity has a lot more to do than just sitting in a mansion watching ESPN or whatever they do up there. You know there's a lot more to it than that. Now, let me show you some things here. John chapter 14, first of all, has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. You say, why is that? Well, first of all, in John chapter 14, there is no church. Holy Spirit of God hasn't come yet. Holy Spirit of God didn't come to Acts chapter 2. When John chapter 14, the event that he's writing here, and he's talking about this, speaking to them, he's not talking to the church. He's talking to a bunch of Old Testament Jewish people who are still fundamentally under the law. If you know your Bible, you know, you say, well, it's in your New Testament books of the Bible. I understand that. But if you know your Bible, Hebrews tells you that the New Testament didn't go into effect until the death of the testator. That's Christ. So technically speaking, John 14 is still in the Old Testament. There's no Christians here. He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews in an Old Testament scenario. Then he says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, we understand fundamentally, we've looked at Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 and 2 Timothy 2 and some of those places. We, we now know that this is dealing with something larger. It's dealing with the nation of Israel, the whole concept of the house of Israel, the household of God. Verse 3, he says, and I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I've, I've heard preachers say this. And I don't fight it. I, I, I enjoy it. I listen to it. Amen. It, you know, they'll say, I've heard preachers get up and preach on heaven and they say, you know what? That Bible says that he's prepared a place for us. He's been preparing that place for 2,000 years. What a great place heaven must be because he's been building and preparing it for 2,000 years. You know how long it took God to create the universe, the heavens, the stars, the galaxies, and the planets? Just that much time. 
Psalm says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood still. It wasn't like God said, okay, man, we're going to create the universe today. Boy, what are we going to do now? Let's get this thing cranked up here. You get this going, you get this going. Man, we're, you know, we've been 10,000 years into this thing. We've got to get it done. Now, Adam and Eve are going to be down in the garden here in another two or 5,000 years. We've got to get moving. Now, he spoke them into existence. It's not the fact that he's been up in heaven for 2,000 years preparing a place for you. That place is already prepared. See, when you know your Bible, when you see something like that, you got to get a little deeper with it. You got to understand. Now, he isn't preparing heaven. I mean, if your loved ones go right now and they die, what do they go into a construction zone? Golden streets, you walk down, but there's a sign you can't enter in here. You know, there's a construction at work. God's preparing something. Of course not. Now, let me take the Bible and show you from the Bible what this place he's preparing is. Keep in mind, it has nothing to do with the church. This will be a little key, but it has everything to do with the nation of Israel. When you go over to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 10, you'll find that that place there is laid out several times. It's Jerusalem. When you go to Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, you again find the place is referenced as Jerusalem. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, you'll find that that place there that he's talking about being prepared uh, is Jerusalem. In other words, what he's saying here is to the Jew. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, let not your heart be, in, be troubled. If you believe in me, believe in God. In my father's house, the house of Israel, all of the household of God are many mansions. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. We think it's heaven. No, he wrote that right before he goes back to heaven. And for the last 2,000 years, he's been preparing the place Jerusalem for the Jews to get back in the land and have that place. And when you go to the Old Testament passages, he's talking about preparing Jerusalem. You know your history at all. You know that the Zionist movement at the uh, end of the 18th century was God's final preparation. You know that World War I changed the land space of Europe. And now the Jew gets back in the land after World War II. And that land now is, is you can see the actual preparation for what God is going to do. Now, here's the killer, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, verse 4. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. It can't be the rapture. There's only one thing I will come again can be. It has to be the second coming of Christ. He's never came in a rapture for the church the first time to say, I'll come back again. But he came to Israel the first time, and he is going to come back to them again. Second coming of Christ, the nation of Israel. Now, here's the other one. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, that is impossible for a Christian. You know why? Because wherever God is, I am. He's in me. He can't come to me. I can't come to him. He's in me. <clears throat> he lives inside me. He can't say to me, Bob, I'm going to come to get you to where I am. You'll be there with me. I say, Lord, that won't work. Why is that, Bob? Because I'm already in you. But Israel isn't. They're not born again. They're not in the body of Christ. 
he will come and bring them to where he is. So you get a better understanding of what this house is when you see how that works. It's to the Jew who is the house of God, the house of Israel. Now our verse says, with that little bit of understanding, and I didn't want to get real deep on it, that verse says, he that troubleth his own uh, house shall inherit the wind. Now let me explain this. Now here he's making reference to the people who trouble the house of Israel, God's house. This, historically, as this is where we're at right now, will be the spiritual leaders that God gave them that left the word of God. I'll show you. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18. Let me give you a great example of this. When he says in Proverbs chapter 11 there, verse 29, uh, he that troubled his house, he's talking historically the house of Israel and the leaders of Israel, the scribes, uh, the, the, uh, the kings, and, and they, they, they troubled the house of Israel. I'm going to show you a great example. Now, there's many examples in the Old Testament. But let's look at this one right here. This is about Ahab. Ahab is the king, and he's a bad king. That leads Israel away from God. And uh, look at the wording in verse 17 and 18. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Here it comes, art thou that troubleth Israel? Trouble in the house. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now you see that? Abraham troubled the house of Israel by taking them into Baal worship and away from God's commandments. And Ahab is just one of the bad leaders that troubled this house. You have Jeroboam, Rehoboam, you have Saul. You have Jehoiakim, you have Jehoram, you have Jehoash, you have Jeroboam II, you have Keniah. In fact, between Israel and Judah, there's some 40 plus kings that lead them as leadership, and I say that 98% of them wind up troubling the house of Israel. Israel's leaders have always been the source of their problem, and I must say, much like the church today. When there's trouble in the house, whether it be the house of the Israel in the Old Testament or the house of God in the New Testament, it will always be the leaders that lead people astray. And uh, you'll find that, uh, uh, as I say many, many times, and it's the truest statement that I probably ever say, everything in life rises and falls on leadership. And when you find trouble in a church, just like you find the trouble in the nation of Israel, it all started with the leaders. When the leadership is corrupt, when the leadership leaves God, then it's going to lead the people wrong. And when the leadership dumps the word of God and leaves the word of God, then they're going to lead the people down the wrong path. That's just the way it works. Now, let me show you something here. I want to just take a few minutes and just look at three or four basic verses that show you this uh, and show you the state of Israel's leadership after David goes. And I must say that David was the greatest leader that Israel ever had, but it began to go downhill from there. Look over at Hosea chapter 4, verse 18. Just take time and look over there for a minute. Let me show you these. Now, this is, these are three or four verses on the corruption of the leadership of the nation of Israel that troubled the house that Proverbs is talking about. 
He says in Hosea 4.18, their drink is sour. They have committed whoredoms continually. Who rulers with shame do love, give ye. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Now there's the leadership of Israel. There's the kings and the priests and the leaders that God gave to Israel to keep them straight. But they're leading them astray. And when they lead them astray, they trouble the house of Israel. First thing he says here is their drink is sour. The message is sour. No sweetness to it. It's all sour grapes. It's all sour stuff. Stuff that you can't enjoy. Maybe it's because they're corrupt. He says down here that there should be a shame because of their sacrifices. They're making the wrong sacrifices. God had some absolute standards for those sacrifices in the Old Testament. And Israel got farther away from God and the leadership got them farther away from God. You know what happened? They forsook the exactness of those sacrifices. And they got to the place in their life where they, they, they now are completely out of fellowship with God and doing whatever they want to do, adding to the law, taking from the law. Well, I've told you before. When Jesus Christ up shows up the first time, he's up against two groups. One of them is the Sadducees, one of them is the Pharisees. They give him problems all the time. You know who they are? They're the leaders of Israel at the first coming of Christ. But you know what? You couldn't find them in the Bible in the Old Testament anywhere. Because there were no Sadducees or Pharisees ever ordained by God to do anything. It was the priests, the Levites. There are no Sadducees. There are no Pharisees. Well, how in the world that they get in charge of the nation of Israel when Christ shows up the first time? I'll tell you how. Because the leadership was corrupt. They didn't follow the Bible. And they started adding a lot of things that just wasn't in the Word of God. And every word out of their mouths, the leaders, the leaders of Israel, every word out of their mouth is, give ye. Wait a minute. I got in the wrong dispensation. I was talking about Israel. But that's the same thing that the churches say today. Isn't it, imagine how the, isn't it amazing how the parallels between the leadership of Israel didn't care about the real sacrifice, didn't care about the right sacrifice. All they wanted was to get up there and say, give ye. That's exactly where the church is at today. Exactly where it's at today. Look at the next one. Micaiah chapter 2 verse 11. Ah, here's a good one. It says, if a man, if a man walking in the spirit, notice it's small spirit, human spirit. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. Now there's a preacher, there's a prophet, there's a guy, a leader in the Old Testament, who very clearly, the Bible says in the back of chapter 2, verse 15, that it's wrong to give your neighbor drink. That Deuteronomy chapter 32 is very clear on anybody drinking wine or strong drink. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29 is very clear on it. 
Genesis chapter 40 is very clear on it. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 6 is very clear on it. But in the Old Testament, here's somebody saying, it's okay for you to drink. And they're the ones in the people who say, that's the prophet I'm talking about. Now, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do in the 20 and 21st century with preachers who stand in the pulpit? Now, now that you have this verse, now, there's an, easy, there's an easy way around this. It's called exacto. That's one of those little razor blade cutters. Just cut it out of your Bible. But once I gave it to you, once I read it to you, it shows you that the leadership of the nation of Israel were going against the clear teachings of the Old Testament about wine and strong drink and then telling the people it was okay to do it. They want to do it, so they buy into it, and the Bible tells you that that man is walking in the spirit of falsehood. Now put that into your New Testament pastor and smoke it. I mean, what are you going to do with that? A man today gets up in the pulpit and says, it's okay to social drink, it's okay to do this, it's okay to do that, as long as you don't do it in set. I'll tell you right now, not from Bob Alexander, but from the Bible, he is walking in the spirit of falsehood. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. I'll move on, that's a rough one for you. Rose, I expect by next week you to run over to the book supply place and get about eight or nine exacto cutters. Malachi chapter 1, verse 7. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and say, wherein have we polluted thee? That's a good thing. You offer polluted bread to God, and then you look up and say, how did we pollute you? Wherein have you polluted thee? And that we say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And you offer the blind for sacrifice. Is it not evil? If you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you got polluted bread on my table of fellowship. Let me break it down for you. You got an NIV, an ASV, or a New King James Bible. And it's made the table of the Lord contemptible. And he says, you offer the blind for a sacrifice. That was against the law. The sacrifice had to be, animal had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It couldn't be blind. It couldn't be, it couldn't have any defects. It had to be absolutely the best. That is a picture of the nation of Israel taking the very best for themselves and giving the leftover goofy stuff to God. Brother, that's exactly what we do. And you don't believe that. You know why he used the word blind? I'll tell you why. Because Revelation chapter 3 verse 17 talked about the church of Laodicea, the church that we live in, and it says that it's blind. We're making the wrong sacrifices today. Churches are making the wrong sacrifice, just like Israel did. Israel was coming to God <coughs> laying Blemish sacrifices on the table and polluting the bread. And then when God wouldn't accept it, they get mad at God and says, what do you mean it's polluted? That's what happens when you lose your Bible. That's what happens when you lose the truth. You're left to yourself and you start, human nature starts to kick in and you start to give God what is left out of your life and you keep the very best for yourself. That's exactly where we're at today. 
a contemptible, fleshy rationalization of the things of God. Giving God what's left in your life, not what's right in your life. Then look at the last one, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. Boy, here's a good one. This is Israel. This is Israel when they have started to leave God and they're troubling their house. And it all comes back to the leaders. It'll always come back to the leaders. That's why in this church, my job is to train leaders. I look for every person on this planet, in this room, who can find your way to the men's room. I want to make you a leader. I'm going to find, took home this place to find everybody who can even find anything that can lead a mule to water. And I want to try to train you and make you and develop you to be a leader because leadership is where it's at. But leadership comes with a price. Now, what's happened here, Israel has allowed contemptible leaders to come in. They've taken the people away. And 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3 says this, Now for a long season, you bet it's been a long time, Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. And here's the whole concept, brother. Nobody's teaching about the true God. And his true word. It's been a long time. You see, the true God tells you there's some standards of holiness. The true God tells you that marriage is a man and a woman. The true God tells you there are some things that God's people don't do. Because they're found in the true book. But when you get out of the book and you get a God, but it isn't a true God like Israel had, you start adding all kinds of things into it. And you come away saying, oh, we got church this morning. We got a God, God. Yeah, but it isn't the true God. It's the God of your imagination to rationalize what you want to do. Now, I'll tell you why there's no true God, and it's the second thing he says in there, because there's no teaching priest. When the priest could got corrupted and they quit teaching the Bible, They lost the concept of the true God. And the teaching priest come up with no law. So for a long time, the nation of Israel has been without a true God, a teaching priest, and without the law. Now, historically, that's the house of Israel being troubled by the leaders. But bring it over into a practical side, that is the church today that is being troubled by the leadership because of the fact of those three things and those whole list of verses I gave you. Somebody said one time, because of the stand I take on the Bible and the way I pastor a church and the way I still believe that God means what he says when he said it, that don't make any apology for it, that I still believe there's just guidelines of holiness that you have to stay within. And the fact that everybody else out there wants to do their own thing and go the way of the world, that's their deal. I understand that there is a true God. I understand that my job is to be a teaching priest. And I understand that I have an absolute standard. Guy told me one time, he says, you know, you're not, your style of ministry in your church compared to Christianity is in the minority. 
He says, you know, you're just a, you're, you, you, you can't be right. You're just a, a small speck. You're, the whole Christian world is going this way. And you're over here in your little corner doing your own thing. Don't you see that you're just a minority? I said, you don't know your Bible very well. I said, you know, in Noah's day, there were six billion people on this planet. And only eight of them got on the ark. I'm in that minority. The majority means nothing. If a hundred million people believe a stupid thing, they'll Chinese say, tis still a stupid thing. (laughs) That's the leadership of the house of Israel that leads them into sin to trouble God's house. Now, let me show it to you in a broader sense. This is a great passage. Come over to Matthew chapter 21. Probably one of the single greatest places in the Bible that shows you the whole historical perspective of Israel at one glance. Now, Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, down through verse 40 here says this. Now, here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen and they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They shall reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of that vineyard cometh, what? will he do unto those husbandmen? Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but that's a picture of the whole concept of the nation of Israel. Let me give you a breakdown from the Bible here. You got a householder, verse 33. That'll be God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. You have a vineyard here. That'll be Israel, according to Isaiah 5, 7, Isaiah 27, 1 through 6, and Psalms 80, verse 8. It says here that uh, he planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it. That would be the Bible after the establishment of the nation of Israel, God bringing him up through Joshua and up through Judges, protecting them. And then it says that he let it out to be husbandmen. That would be the leaders of Israel. That would be the kings. That would be 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. And he goes into a far country. That's where he turns the leadership of Israel over to these husbandmen, the kings of Israel. Verse 34 says, when the time of the fruit drew near, you'll find that time in 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 talks about this time. The prophets came in, the Old Testament man who preached God's word, said to the leaders of Israel, You are here to bear fruit. Where's the fruit that you're supposed to be building for God? And the Bible says the husbandmen, the leaders, 
Down there in verse 35, and the husband took his servants, Old Testament prophets, beat one, killed another, stoned another. If you don't have it in the Bible, the one that got beaten was in 1 Kings 22, 14. The one that was killed was uh, Jeremiah 26, 23. And the one that got stoned, that would be with rocks. Got to be careful how you preach today. 2 Chronicles 24, 21. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. That would be your minor prophets, the rest of the Old Testament prophets. And they did unto them just like they did to the other ones. Then here, verse 37. But last of all, he sent unto them his son. There comes the Lord Jesus Christ, the first coming of Christ. They will reverence my son. And when the husbandmen, the leaders of Israel, saw the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard, Jerusalem, and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Second coming of Christ. Now, that passage is an overview of the nation of Israel and their departing from God that caused the trouble in the house by the leadership, by the husbandmen, the Old Testament leaders. Now, here's how it worked. You have the kings and the priests, and, of course, you have a high priest. And they're the leaders of Israel once the kingdom gets established. Then you have the prophets. Now, the prophets, you remember, there is no Bible back here. They have the first five books of the Bible of Moses, but that's all they've got. So they don't have a Bible to look in the book, chapter, verse. So when God wants to give them a message or keep them online, he gives his word from God to the prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of those guys. And they'll go into the leaders of Israel, and they always start out by saying this, thus saith the Lord, and they give them the message. A great example of it in a good sense is David with Nathan. David's in sin. Nathan goes in, says, thou art the man, brings him to his knees. Elijah is a bad king, or Ahab's a bad king. Elijah goes in. He tells him what God does. They try to kill him. And it was because of this trouble in the house that Israel inherited the wind. And that wind turns into a whirlwind. That verse says, He that troubles his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise in heart. Now this inheriting the wind, historically will be as we know it, the captivity coming down with Shennacherib from the north and Babylon from the east and 606 and 587, and a little bit later on, around Christ after Christ's death, 70 A.D. But doctrinally, it'll be a picture of the second coming of Christ. Now, there's a practical side to this, and this is what you want to see. You see an example of the trouble in the house in the Old Testament in the house of Abraham. Remember? Remember his wife, Sarah, couldn't give child and gave him Hagar? So he has a baby with Hagar, Ishmael, and a little bit later on he gets the promised seed, Isaac. You know what it caused in his house? Trouble in the house. A little bit later on, you got Jacob and Esau. You know what that caused? Trouble in the house. A little bit later on, he had David who got messed up and got, had Absalom, his son. You know what that had in his house? Trouble in his house. Not following the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament in a historical application or a New Testament practical application, will always bring a storm into your house. 
Now, before I get to the last part of this verse, let me make just a quick few practical application remarks. Dad, I know it's not Father's Day, but here's an early present. This will probably be a good gift for your wife because she can beat you up with it all day today. Do you know why you'll have trouble in your own house with your kids, with your family, with your wife? It's because you, as the leader of your family, just like the leaders of Israel, have not led them right. Now, I'm not going to beat you up on this today. We've talked about it many, many times. But that's why you have trouble in your house. You caused it. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You won't fix it the way the Bible says to fix it. And now, here it is. Your kids are 20, 30 years old, and you've got a storm constantly brewing in your house. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not. In Matthew chapter 21 that I just read over there, in 33 verse 40, did you see that when, how God fixed the trouble in his house? He comes back at the second coming of Christ, and he's got trouble in the house of Israel. Well, the first thing he did, he cleans house. And you know, sometimes, ladies, you know this is true. You let your house go, your home, just get cluttered up with dirt and dust, throw your clothes everywhere, leave coats hanging here on the floor, everything over here, don't ever do any work, just let it go, dust builds up, dirt builds up, dog hair everywhere. I mean, after a while, you know what? You got trouble in the house. You know what you got to do? Every woman does this. Every woman will have one bad day probably every other week that you better just move out, stay away, because it's the day she looks at you and says, I got to clean this house today. It's a mess. Of course, the reason it's a mess, guys, is us. Let's face it. But you know in your spiritual home, with your kids and your wife, there's times you've got to clean house. There's times you've got to do business. And when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ, Israel's brought trouble in the house. The first thing he does is clean house. You know the second thing he does? He sets his house in order. He says, all right, boys, millennium's here. I'm on the throne. Here's how it's going to run. Stay, leave, do whatever you want to do. Here's how it's going to run. Puts it in order. That's a good model. Now look at the last part of verse 29. And the fool shall be servant to the wise in heart. If, there's every, if there was ever any one principle that we all need to learn, kids, I'm going to tell you. It's this one right here. Now, this, ought to be, this ought to be your favorite verse. Because what he's saying is so simple. He's simply saying, and we will never get it. We'll never be honest with it. We'll never, we'll never see it. We'll never get it. But boy, it is so true. And life would be so much easier if we did. He's simply saying when it comes to Israel and getting out of fellowship, or when it comes to you and me getting out of fellowship and going our own way, you're never going to win. You ain't ever going to win. You ain't ever going to get out from behind the eight ball. Israel couldn't do it. You and I will not do it. 
One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I've given it to you many, many times, is Job 9.4. My, my, what a verse. It says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and hath prospered. And the answer, my dear friend, is nobody. Israel couldn't do it, and neither will you, and neither will I, nor your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad. You'll become a servant to the wise in heart all of your life and go nowhere. Because we're such a fool to think that as a child of God, like the nation of Israel, we can leave God and leave his word and go do our own thing and not have any trouble in our house. Listen, God will always keep you behind that proverbial eight ball. There'll always be somebody out there smarter, wiser, stronger, that will make you their servant. Well, all down through history, the nation of Israel, when Christ was on that cross, and they had a chance to get right, God displayed, I know he died for me on the cross, I understand that, but God displayed on that cross before the nation of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, everybody was seeing him on that cross laid out naked as the son of God. At that point, they had the chance to say, he's our king, but you know what they said? Two great, great, great statements that have haunted them for the next 2,600 years. Let his blood be upon us and our people And we have no king but Caesar. And so foolishly, they thought that they could prosper in that statement. And when they said, we'll have no king but Caesar, God says, write that down. And for the next 2,600 years, God's people were the servants. The fools were servants to those that were wiser. Rome, Spain, all of Europe, France, all down through the next 2,600 years. And boy, I'll tell you what, his blood be upon us and our people. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to get around without God, without the Bible. We're going to do what we want to do. Sound familiar, kids? But boy, when they got into death camps of the Nazis in 1939 to 1945, the Holocaust, you see how that choice of life didn't work out very well for them. And it'll never work out for you either. Because as the Bible says, the fool shall be servant to the wise in heart. You'll start doing drugs. And you'll get hooked on drugs. And you know what? You'll become a servant to the drug dealer. He won't ever take them. He just takes your money and you become a servant to him. You get hooked on booze. And now you're servant to the liquor store. You're sick and servant to the bartender. You're servant to the very people who, they'll never be an alcoholic, but you're so caught in because they're smarter than you. They're wiser than you. And you become a servant to them. Oh, you'll never get away. Hey, when Israel went into, when Israel went into captivity in 6 BC, they were captive of the world. And when you walk away from God in your life and you say you're going to do your own thing, same thing happens, brother. You become a servant to this world. There ain't a thing you can do about it. Israel wanted to go their own way, to do their own thing, to be their own nation. But now we see today that their survival totally depends on other nations to give them what they need to survive. 
they become servants to the Gentile nations. If it wasn't for the United States, I know she's a nation today, but if it wasn't for the USA and England, she would have been wiped off the map a long time ago. She now is totally dependent because she was foolish. And I know God's going to restore her. God's going to bring her back. But right now, she's under the iron heel of the Gentiles, and she's a servant to those that were smarter. Now, let me tell you kids something. You get messed up and get into the world, get into drugs, get into sin, get into booze, get into the world, and become worthless, and you still forsake God, you still forsake church, you still go your own way and blame others for it, and your parents too. You'll always be dependent on somebody else because you're a fool. You won't have any food, so the government will have to give you food stamps. You won't have, you won't have any, any medical care. So when you're sick, you gotta, the government has to pay for it. You'll always be going back to your friends or your mom or your dad or your parents, the very ones who you wouldn't listen to, the very ones who tried to warn you about your lifestyle and where you were going. But, oh, no, you knew more about it than they did. You wanted your own life, just like Israel. You wanted to do your own thing, just like Israel. I bumped into a little gal here a couple of months ago, a long time ago, used to come to our church. Sweet kid. I love her to death. But she never wanted to do what the Bible said. And she was a nice little gal. I really liked her a lot. I wish she would have made it. But she got hooked up with the wrong crowd. She got, got back out in the world. She wanted to do her own thing, quit coming to church, get out of her Bible, Started running with this crowd. And so it's been about three or four years since I've seen her. And I bumped into her a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, whenever it was. And here's a gal that when she went out, she was going to do her own thing. And here she is two or three years later. She's got three kids, all by three different fathers, and no fathers anywhere to be seen. She's working now two jobs. She has no time for herself. The day I saw her, she was so absolutely sick. She was absolutely had the flu or the sick, and yet she couldn't even take the time off to go home to be sick because she has to work because she has three kids with no support, no fathers giving her a dime, and she made that. And she thought when she went out, my life is going to be my own. Now she's a servant. Your parents try to tell you what's right, try to keep you on the right path and get you to do what's right. Oh, no, no. You know what you're doing. You got more brains than they got. You ain't going to listen to anybody. But boy, when you get out of that world system, boy, and it rejects you and you get busted up and you get broken and you're behind the eight ball and you go nowhere, you go right back to the very ones who warned you the consequences and you say, Dad, I need money. I don't have a place to stay. I don't have this. I don't have that. You become a servant to the wise who knew better. And I'll tell you why that is if you want to know. And yes, if you're not aware of it yet, I am preaching now. I'll tell you why that is. Because the devil will do a lot of things for you. 
But he will not ever feed you. He will never clothe you. He'll never give you a warm bed at night. He'll never provide for you a good job or give you a car. He'll never pay the bills. He'll never fix your marriage. He'll just destroy everything in your life. That's what he'll do for you. Years ago, I had a guy that uh, had a kid, and his kid was worthless. Well, he was. I don't know what to tell you. Out in the world, wouldn't listen to anybody. He had lost his job. He had no place to stay. He had no food. He hadn't had a bath in three or four weeks. I mean, he was a mess. And his dad says, he wants to meet with me tonight. I just want you to be there so you understand. I don't want you to do anything or say anything unless you want to. But I want you there as my witness of what I'm doing is biblical. And I said, okay. So we met someplace, and this kid, he looked terrible. He was into booze. He was into I mean, the world had left its tire tracks on his face. And he's saying to his dad, Dad, I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have this. I don't have any money. I'm hungry. Haven't eaten for two days. Dad, I need you to do this for me and do this for me. Never one time do I want to come back to God. Never one time was I wrong. It was like the guy up here preaching. Just give me. His dad said one of the most amazing things I ever heard a man say to his own kid, and I've never forgotten it. He let that kid go on and on and on for a long time, and when that kid was all done with his little thing, and I'm sure it tore his heart out. The dad looked at him and he says, son, I'm buying for dinner. You see this money? God gave me that money. And then I'm going to go get in my car. That's my car out there, son. God gave me that car. He says, and I'm going to go home. And I said, I, I, he says, I'm going I'm to be with my wife and I'm going to be with my other kids. And, I'm gonna, and, and God gave me that family. And I says, you see these clothes I got on? God gave me these clothes. He said, I, son, I just got one question for you. What in the world has the devil done for you that makes you serve him like you do? What has he given you? And the fool shall be servant to the wise in heart. The very system they rejected, the very ones who told them of the consequences of their sin, and, and they hated it when you told them. They, they knew their own way. They knew their own thing. Now, when you reap the wind, that's the whirlwind. You're a fool, Proverbs eleven twenty nine, because you just wind up being a servant to somebody who does it right or that's smarter than you are, who stays out of those things. Listen, when Israel left God, they went into the captivity of this world. And when you and I as a Christian leave God, we too wind up a captive of this world. And brother, that's a tough taskmaster. The only freedom you have is the freedom of a flourishing relationship with God as the righteous branch. That's why a good preacher, he preaches. And when he preaches, he keeps the trouble out of his house. A good father cleans house and then he sets an order. A good preacher cleans house and sets an order. Because it's the truth that sets you free. And believe me, 40 plus years of preaching this whole book has taught me a few things about people and human nature. And I will tell you something, nothing, and I mean nothing, will clean the rats out of the house of God quicker than good, hard, old-fashioned preaching that will clean out the house and keep people from troubling it. Oh, they'll blame you. 
They'll blame the church. They'll blame the preacher. They'll blame everybody, but that's okay. You don't get it. That's okay. As long as you keep your trouble out of my house. Remember, Jesus will do two things when he comes back. He'll clean house, and he'll set all things in order. Now, the Bible talks about the washing of water by the word. That's why preaching is so important. When somebody teaches you, it's kind of like a sponge bath. It's nice, it's refreshing, but it really doesn't get behind your ears. And you, and you know it's true when you wash your clothes. You get your jeans dirty and your shirt dirty and you take them home and you put them in a washing machine and, and the water in the Bible is likened to the Word of God. You put them in there, put your soap in there and you don't, just don't walk away and come back and pick your clothes out and they're clean. There's a cycle that it goes through and that cycle is on your washing machine. And in your Christian life, there's a cycle of getting clean. Do you know that? You got to have the place where you're at, that'd be your washing machine. You got to have the water, that'd be the Word of God. But you know what gets your clothes clean? It's a little item in that washing machine called an agitator. That'd be me. And that agitator just beats your clothes six ways from Sunday. It just rips them and beats them back and forth till they can't stand it. The reason why your machine makes so much noise is to drown out the screams of your clothes as they're being thrashed back and forth. And then they're clean. And sometimes, when they don't get clean, you got to wash them again. But this time, you got to get that little bottle and you got to shout it out! Amen. Got to keep the house clean. For he that troubled his own house shall inherit the wind. And a fool shall be servant to the wise in heart. What a great proverb that is for life. You know, not only does it shed light on the two main components of the Bible, the church and the nation of Israel, as part of God's house, but it shows us the practical application for us or our family or our church of why preaching the Word of God is so important. And when Israel lost the true God, They lost it because they lost the teaching priest. And they lost the teaching priest because he lost the law, the truth of God. And those are three things that no church can ever lose. You always got to have an absolute standard that God set down. We do. You got to have a teaching priest. You do. And you got to have a true God. We do. Because you got to be exact with what God wants you to be. Or you wind up making the wrong sacrifices. No blind sacrifices, no imperfect sacrifices. You saw yesterday for those that you that went and those that prayed, that was a concise, perfect sacrifice that somebody, a bunch of people make right on the money. No blind spots, no imperfections. I mean, it was textbook. That's what it needs to be. Well, we'll keep moving on in Proverbs next week. Before we're dismissed today, I got to